I'm not preaching on the Old Testament reading for this morning, but I do think it's interesting that God makes his covenant not only with Noah and his descendants, that would be all of us, but he makes the covenant with the beasts, with the animals. Uh, that, that includes Fred, right? <laughs> or Scooter, right? Uh, banjo and so on. God is good. We bow our heads and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. So, page 11 on your sermon outline. Roman number one, there are two themes in the gospel reading for this morning. Letter A, the first theme is the supernatural character, or we could say the divine character, of Jesus. Point number one, he provided food in the wilderness last week, and that's sort of a redo now of the feeding of the Israelites in the desert with manna. That was a supernatural event. God did that for 40 years. It was a flaky-like substance that appeared on the ground every morning. They would scoop it up, and they could bake with it. They could eat it raw, I guess. Um, it had the taste of honey. Not bad stuff, especially out in the desert. Uh, Jesus really goes a little further, though. Uh, he, he produces baked loaves of bread, miraculously. We read about that last week. And then secondly, number two, in our gospel lesson for today, Jesus exercises authority over the sea. And this is similar to the authority that God exercised over the Red Sea when he parted it for ancient Israel and they crossed the sea on dry ground. And so this is something only God can do, as, as we heard earlier in the children's sermon. God stretches out the heavens and he walks on the waves, and he's doing that again in our gospel reading for today. Now, you and I are familiar with that. We're accustomed to hearing about Jesus doing things only God can do. We believe that he is God in the flesh, as the scripture declares, but the disciples in our gospel reading for this morning, they're not there yet. They're not ready to get on board with this idea that this man is doing God's stuff. We read that their hearts are hard. And so that's really the second theme. Point B, the inability of the disciples to cope with it. To cope with the idea that this man is God. At this point in their journey with Jesus, the disciples are not ready to acknowledge his divinity. They're unable to accept the fact that this man who fed more than 5,000 people in our previous gospel reading is the same God who fed Israel in the desert. The disciples are not ready to sign on yet with the idea that this man walking on the sea is the God who in the book of Genesis parted the waters for ancient Israel. Even though they see the evidence, they're not going there yet. And that's what 
Mark refers to as hardness of heart in verse 52 of our reading. Hardness of heart is a refusal to believe the truth about God when it's standing right in front of you. And this is a shocking statement that Mark makes about the disciples because in the Gospels, it's the opponents of Jesus who exhibit hardness of heart. And if the disciples have difficulty today believing that their master is anything like the God of the Old Testament, wait until they hear, wait until they learn that this God-man will suffer and die for the unrighteous, that God would die for sinners, even the very worst among us, they will not be ready to hear that. And that's why when Jesus announces that later in the gospel, Peter will oppose him and say, not so, Lord, this will not happen to you. And how does Jesus respond? Get behind me, Satan, meaning follow me. Don't block me. See, Peter becomes an opponent of God, God in Christ. So the disciples are unable to cope with Christ's divinity and its implications. And so the question point C is, can we cope with that? Can we handle it? Can we have hard hearts? You know, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus will again say to his disciples, are your hearts hard? Do you have eyes but don't see? Do you have ears but you're not hearing? He'll bring it up again. Can that be true of us? Can it? Well, we'll come back to that, okay? We'll come back to that. Point number two, Roman numeral two. The most common phrase in the Bible is, any guesses? Do not be afraid. The most common phrase in the Bible. Or have no fear is another way of putting it. Do not be afraid. Letter A, it appears over 100 times in the Old Testament. It appears over 40 times in the New. And it appears in our Gospel reading for today. Why? Because Jesus comes to the disciples in a way that strikes terror into them. And Jesus sets this up. He compels them. He makes them get into the boat without him. He sends them out across the lake. And he has to know there's a strong wind that's going to hold them up out there which will give him enough time to eventually walk across the water to them, right? And this manifestation of God in the flesh is so puzzling to them that they're terrified. They think it's a ghost or some sort of monster. Jesus comes to them in a way that they cannot handle. And this always happens with what we call a theophany, an appearance of God to men. Men cower, they tremble, they withdraw in fright. Okay, so the disciples are crying out. And in verse 50, Jesus says this. He says, take courage, or take heart, same thing. Take courage. Why? Why Why should they take courage? Well, he follows it up with saying, it is I. 
It is I. Do not be afraid. In other words, you know me. It's me. Not a monster. You know me. And that brings us to Roman numeral three. Fear, fear is overcome by familiarity. It's overcome by familiarity and and ultimately love. And those two are related, but we're going to stick with familiarity today. Because we fear the unknown. We fear the unknown, but we do not fear the familiar. This is why Jesus could say, take courage, it is I. Not someone or something else. Don't be afraid. Many years ago when I was in college, I I lived for a couple of years right across the street from campus um, in a, I guess it was like a boarding house. And I don't know what it's like today, but in those days, um, there were a number of older, they were large, used to be single family homes that are now apartments, you know, or they became apartments when I went to college. And uh, Mrs. Duncan owned the house and she had lived there for many, many years. she rented out the upstairs. She lived in the downstairs, the main part of the house, and she rented out the upstairs rooms. Um, and I rented a room. It, I think it was, I recall, it was $38.50 a month to, to rent that room. And we shared a bathroom down the hall with other, only men. And uh, I, I got to know Mrs. Duncan. She was a wonderful elderly woman. Um, we would talk about many things. I would sit with her on the front porch at times and, and uh, I would talk about my Christian faith and her Christian faith, many conversations. I, I remember one day asking her what it was like to go on dates when, like back in 1910. And she said, well, a young man would come up in his carriage and we'd go for a short drive and come back home. And I said, well, uh, open-air carriage? I said, that would, that would be cold. And she said, oh, there was always a blanket. And I thought, yeah, that makes sense. Um, Harriet and I, uh, this is off the topic, I'm sorry. Harriet and I were up in Greenfield Village up in Dearborn, Michigan, and we, we, we took a ride in a Model T. That's open-air, and there were blankets. <laughs> in the Model T. Well, anyway, uh, she and I got along famously and and, uh, many wonderful conversations. And one evening, the power went out and there were no lights and all of us guys would come out in the hallway upstairs and what are we gonna do? Uh, Mrs. Duncan was in bed, asleep in her apartment and someone said, "We, we gotta go downstairs. One of us has to go downstairs, wake her up It must be a blown fuse or something like that. We've got to wake her up and and get this fixed. And I said, I'm not going down there to wake her up. And and, uh, someone said, well, let's all go down together. One guy said, let's all wear masks and really scare her, you know. And I thought, oh, that's so cruel. How can you you do that? Think of that. Well, so we, we went into her apartment and a, a guy named Mark, he said, Mrs. Duncan, Mrs. Duncan, 
and she was frightened. She said, what? Who? Who's there? And she said, well, it's Mark, and uh, the lights are out. We think maybe it's a blown fuse. We're not sure, but we need the power back on. And she paused, and she said, is John with you? And I said, yes, Mrs. Duncan, I'm here. So rather than call the police, she got up, put on her house coat, went to the fuse box, changed the fuse, and we had power again, had lights on. Well, the whole point of that is that fear is overcome by familiarity, okay? She trusted me. If I'm there, she'll get up. And it's that way with God. Familiarity with God overcomes the fear of whatever God is doing to you at the moment. Very important concept. And I mentioned this at the Hinkle funeral, uh, and I'm not going to cover that ground again, but just to make the distinction briefly between God's strange work, his alien work, and his proper work. And God's alien work, his strange work is to judge, it is to condemn, it is to destroy. His proper work, however, is to love, it is to forgive and to build up and to, to lift up the lowly. And this is present throughout Scripture. And I, I just quote one verse. This is from Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. God is the speaker here. See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I wound and I heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. Now, that's the reality about God. You, you see there the, the strange work that he does, but you also see the proper work, the loving work that he does. Now, hardness of heart will deny that. Hardness of heart says, my concept of God will not allow for this strange work. My concept of God is one that God, will, God is here to prosper me, God is here to bless me, and that's it. He would never do me any harm. Now, that's a very common view of God today. And it's also a rejection of the biblical understanding of God himself. That is hardness of heart. Now, contrast that with faith. Letter A, the psalmist is writing here, and he's suffering from, from some illness. I was mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. Now, all of us know illness in any form can be difficult, it can be tragic to cope with. But the psalmist knows that illness, like anything else, is ultimately from the Lord. Pontius Pilate said to Jesus, don't you know I have authority over you to crucify you? And how did Jesus reply? This is letter B. You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Jesus knew that all power and authority comes from God. Now, people can misuse the power they're given. 
they can misuse it in a way that's contrary to the will of God. My point is simply this, it's still God's authority. Even though it's being misused, it's still his authority. Jesus knew that his trial was a sham. He knew that he was unjustly condemned to death. But Jesus could accept crucifixion because he could see God's hand behind it. God himself was behind the nails, being driven into his flesh. And it is as if God was saying to his son, do not be afraid, it is I, it is I. And I I believe you can apply what I'm saying today to virtually any tragic event in life. None of us can cope emotionally or spiritually with uncontrollable evil. The idea that that evil knows no limits and that's beyond the control of God. And there are some theologians that believe that. But we can't cope with that. We, We can cope with evil when we believe that it's always under the control of a loving God. Jesus said the devil's been a murderer from the beginning. But then you read the book of Job, it teaches that the devil is God's devil, and the devil can do only what God allows and no more, and that's comforting. Joseph, in the book of Genesis, was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was enslaved, he was imprisoned, and eventually, as as many of you know, God elevated him over all except Pharaoh in Egypt and and accomplished much good. And, And this is how Joseph summed it all up when he confronted his brothers many years later. He said, you meant to do me harm, but God meant it for good to save many lives. The crucifixion of Jesus is the greatest evil of all time, that the sinless Son of God would be put to death as a criminal, But but in God's loving hands, it accomplishes the greatest good of all time, the redemption of sinful humanity. So that even the greatest evil is under the control of a God whose loving purposes are always at work. Uh, I take my dog Banjo to the vet, and um, he he just shakes. He, He trembles when he's there. But he allows me to pick him up and put him on that examination table even though he's trembling. Why does he allow me to do that? Because he knows it's me. It's me. Familiarity overcomes fear. And familiarity with God overcomes the fear of whatever God may be doing. Familiarity with the God who would not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Familiarity with that God overcomes our fear of whatever he may allow into our lives. So, letter C, the critical question is not what, but whom. It's not what, but whom. The critical question is not what is happening to me, but whom is the one doing it. Once I get that straight, my fear subsides, my courage begins to grow. Now we thank God 
for his proper work, his work to give life to the dead, to lift up those who've been brought low, and to save the lost. But even when we encounter his strange work, even when we've been humbled by the Lord, even when we're brought low by the circumstances of life, even then, God is saying to us what Jesus says today in our gospel lesson. Take courage, it is I, it is I. Do not be afraid. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.